You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Well, hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today it is my absolute privilege to bring you a discussion with an inspiring clinician, researcher, entrepreneur, and former Australian of the Year, Professor Fiona Wood. Fiona has spent a lifetime specialising in the field of burns, initially as a surgeon and later by helping to develop a revolutionary tissue engineering therapy that accelerates wound recovery and drastically reduces the scarring that is often suffered by burns victims. As you'll hear, Fiona was quietly refining these therapies from her base at the Royal Perth Hospital when she was thrust into the national spotlight as victims of the 2002 Bali bombing terrorist attacks landed in her hospital unit needing urgent care. What followed was a whirlwind of publicity, public awareness and accolades that culminated in Fiona being named Australian of the Year in 2005. All the while, Fiona was continuing to commercialise her technology through a spin-out company now known as Avita Therapeutics that is dual-listed on the ASX and NASDAQ stock exchanges. Not to rest on these professional laurels, Fiona has also raised six children with her partner Tony, worked to facilitate community-led innovation in Western Australia, and co-founded a charitable foundation that supports Burns Research. Professor Fiona Wood, welcome to Lab Notes. Thank you very much. Well, you've had an incredible career as a surgeon, a scientist, and a public figure. But throughout it all, the central theme seems to be Burns treatment. What is it about burns that has so captured your imagination? Whoa, I think that sort of takes me right back. And uh, as a young doctor, seeing some burn scarring and trying to fathom how could it be so bad and you know, that, that skin be so damaged such that it would never recover. It's almost unfathomable, isn't it? Why certain things interest different people. And so I've always felt fortunate that I found something that did so that I could then really spend a lot of energy trying to work out how to do better. And I think, you know, I say to lots of the young doctors, it doesn't matter what it is, but find something that you're passionate about. So that when you get up in the morning, you know you're going to strive to make a difference. So before we dive into your Burns work, can we get a bit of background about the makings of Fiona Wood? You were born in Yorkshire in northern England, an area rich in history, castles and courtyards, not least of all at your high school, Ackworth. What do you remember about those early days and your education in Yorkshire? Oh, God. Uh, I mean, the castles and courtyards, I was more of a scullery-made kind of end of the spectrum, I think, <laughs> uh, because mum and dad both left school very young and worked really hard to give us an education that gave us choice. And so when I did get to Ackworth, the school that I went to when I was 13, my life changed because it gave me the opportunity to have an education that would lead on to a university. And it was, you know, it was eye-opening. You know, it was just extraordinary because then that was more on the castles and courtyard side of things. When I speak with my mum now, she's 90 next week, I say, well, you brought us up to leave, because you were absolutely adamant there was a big world out there full of opportunities. All you had to do was grasp the nettle with both hands and not let it go. 
Well, you certainly did grab that opportunity with both hands and medicine called to you. You studied your MBBS at the St. Thomas Medical School in London and spent quite a bit of time at the nearby Hunterian Museum. Can you tell us about that place and what attracted you to it? Well, the, uh, the Hunterian Museum is actually in the Royal College of Surgeons, but as a young medical student, I did an extra degree in anatomy. I liked anatomy. I liked the whole, the way we're all structurally put together and the nuance of that. And in the Hunterian Museum, it uh, has a whole range of strange and weird and wonderful exhibits from the Irish giant to the arthritic old maid. There's the Hunterian Museum has continued from John Hunter to the present day. There's exhibits that, for example, one is demonstrates the plastic surgery done in the First World War with sort of artist sketches, extraordinary reconstructive work for gunshot wounds to the face. Yeah, and yeah, I was there with my eldest daughter, who's a plastic surgery trainee. I said, well, look at that, something to strive for. And that was, you know, over 100 years ago. And, 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 and also, it has the biggest collection of brains in the world, from worms to elephants. And I was very interested in neuroanatomy. So I went and studied the brains of all the various different animals and looked at their their sort of morphology and the shape and the different uh, areas of the brain that were that, uh, developed in response to the characteristics of the animal, which is quite interesting if you're a teenage nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, absolutely. And look, after graduating, you worked as a registrar in a number of UK hospitals, but you were faithfully lured to Australia in 1987. And I think we have Tony to thank for that. Can you tell us about how you guys met and what prompted you to uproot your family to come to Perth? Well, it was, as he said, non-negotiable. You marry me, you live in Perth and that's not Scotland. Uh, we met at a course, a kind of cramming course in the north of London. And so uh, we got married the first weekend. We both had off roster. It seemed a reasonable thing to do at the time. Uh, and, you know, 30 odd years later, it's still the reasonable thing to do, to have done. Uh, so I knew by marrying Tony that I'd made the decision to leave the UK. And uh, I'd have to say I've not regretted it for one moment. You know, the first day, I remember my first day here, I woke up, it was sunny. Oh, Tony, wake up, wake up. What's the matter? I said, it's a sunny day. We can't miss a sunny day. He goes, there'll be 360 more of them. I thought, oh, my God, where have I come to? Yeah. It's just like being on holiday every day. So on the website for your charitable foundation, there's a biography about you. And one of the things that it says is that soon after landing in Perth, you sought out a local surgeon called Harold McComb. And I was really interested in that phrasing because it implies something very conscious and purposeful. What drew you to Harold and how important was his mentorship to your career? Huge. Uh, I've been a very focused career surgeon in an environment that was relatively hostile because I was female. And I was coming and I'd made the commitment to come to the other side of the world, to the world's most remote city. And I was very focused in research as well. So like, how am I going to uh, uh, make my career work in a, such a small place? And the only surgeon I knew, I was very interested in both burns and cleft lip and palate repair. And the only surgeon I had read any work of that was in Perth was Harold McCup. And clearly from what he'd written and from his results, it was a, a surgeon of some considerable skill. 
And so uh, as I arrived, I think within days, I went to the hospital and introduced myself and asked if I could come and watch him operate uh, because I wanted to learn. I was, I've always been, still am, hungry to learn. I want to know things. I want to know why, you know. So, And I wanted to see. I wanted to see how to do things. And so I went to the children's hospital and then I assisted him in the private hospital in Bethesda where he worked. And he was in, indeed an extremely skillful and gifted surgeon. And he taught me many things. One is always to learn something today to make tomorrow better. But he also taught me that, in fact, if you did uh, you did a hundred of something, uh, a given surgical procedure, uh, then you could write that you know you'd done a hundred. But wouldn't it be better to do the whole population and do it well? And even if that population was fifty, then you've done the whole population in a, a catchment area. And so subspecialization and, and collection of the data and really attention to detail. And you don't have to be one surgeon sort of skimming the surface of a big pool, but the surgeon that dives deep in a limited pool can actually be, in fact, paradoxically more productive in their research and from a global research perspective. And that's what I aimed to do. And that's where we, that was my starting point. And that was because of Mr. McCon. Well, with his inspiration, or perhaps under your own steam, you completed your specialization and became West Australia's first female plastic surgeon. And you soon found a job as a director of the Burns Service of Western Australia. When you stepped into that role in the early 90s, what were, what were your goals for the institution? Scarless healing. And with a clear understanding that every intervention from the point of injury influences the word, the scar wound for life. So every intervention, therefore, we had to reach out, we had to educate, we had to make sure that people were in the best condition they could be to make sure they survived and that the quality of that survival was worth the pain. And so it was both a broad systems approach underpinned by education and training and a targeted, focused research sort of problem solving around specific targeted zones, whether it be around tissue engineering of skin, physiotherapy, early mobilization, for example, is six weeks in most places in the world. For us, it's 48 hours. And I have Dale Edgar, who I kind of poached from Queensland 20 years ago, and he's driven an extraordinarily research-based physiotherapy program in the burn service. It's really driven home those patient-centered outcomes and so on. So if there's anything anywhere in the world that's been done better, then we need to bring it here and always, always strive for excellence. So from the moment you took the reins of the Burns Service of Western Australia, Fiona Wood embarked on a program of research and collaboration that would see the institution become a world leader in Burns therapy. One collaboration in particular was destined to have an incredible impact not only on Burns therapy, but on Fiona's life as well. It was a project applying the emerging science of tissue engineering to Burns treatment technology that would ultimately evolve into the spray-on skin most associated with Fiona's clinic. But it would be impossible to tell that story without Marie Stoner, a research scientist who collaborated closely on the project and ultimately became a business partner and lifelong friend to boot. 
I asked Fiona about how she met Maria and the development of spray-on skin. Yes, I mean, Marie's a great friend, but when I met her, she was doing the bone marrow preps, so medical scientist getting all the bone marrows ready for the transplants in the day. And I was in the lab getting the skin ready for the day. That's where I met Marie, somebody equally crazy in the middle of the night, getting things ready for the next day. And so uh, we worked together, got a grant, and so I established our skin lab, and away we went in February of 93. And I remember saying to Marie, the first thing we've got to do is do this faster. Growing epithelial cell sheet in three weeks is too long. I can't wait that long. I need to go faster, really as quick as possible. So the first cab off the rank, we did it in 10 days. Then we started by 94, 95, putting it on as a solution. And so then we started spraying it on. And then we took the basic uh, aspects of the tissue engineering process to the bedside. And uh, so we have we developed the point of care device uh, and then uh, we were able to commercialize, form a company, assigned our intellectual property to a not for profit foundation. So that's sort of in less than two minutes. It's 15 years work. But <laughs> the rest is history, as they say, because the Avita Medical, which is now the company that continued the commercialization of the resale kit, uh, was the best performing stock in the ASX last year. Well, yes, that was certainly a whirlwind tour. Um, so to break it down a little for the audience, the core technology developed by Maria and yourself is known as the Resell Kit. It's a point of care system that allows you to harvest healthy skin from a burns victim and almost immediately reapply that tissue back to the wound. So you and Maria patented this approach and collectively established a company under the name Clinical Cell Culture that would take this technology forward into the commercial world. Now, one thing you mentioned there that I found very interesting and indeed somewhat unusual is that you did not assign the IP to the company itself, but rather to a charitable research foundation that is now known as the Fiona Wood Foundation. Could you talk us through that decision to establish the foundation? What has the interaction been like between that entity and the company commercializing the technology? We set up the foundation earlier because we realised competitive grants are very challenging. And so how can we even out the rough spots? I did some private work at that point. I did about a, a day a week in private practice uh, because that's how we were structured. And so I would charge a rebate cost, which is a bit unusual for a plastic surgeon. You could put the, the AMA rate there and the gap, and but you say you, you could act, you'll accept the rebate but if people wanted to donate to pay the gap, they could donate it and then they get a tax deduction. So people could actually put money into the foundation rather than to myself, which I was much more comfortable with. And some people did and some people didn't. And that's fine. And so we and that was how we set off with the foundation in the early days. And we were then able to use that vehicle to fundraise as we set up a not, that not for profit, which is a focus on Burns research. Uh, and so we had that entity established and it was with a board and governance also established. And so when it came to setting up a, a company, we weren't as uh, familiar with that and we wanted to protect what we had. And of course, we had to acknowledge the health department where we'd done the work and the university. So we basically had the intellectual property in the not-for-profit foundation 
and so that the uh, royalties go forward would support our research, which is ironed out the rough spots over the years. And then uh, we have a situation where in Western Australia, we use the resale kit in the ho public hospitals for not, at a not-for-profit level. And that was in recognition of the development where this IP came from. So it was a, a, a sort of a triangular arrangement that's done quite well. Over the period of time, uh, because it's a lot of water under the bridge, the intellectual property now is housed in Avita Medical and we have royalties coming through to the foundation, as I say, which is the aim. The aim was to fund our research and to make the technology more broadly available. So we've been able to achieve that. Well, I must say that's a very benevolent approach, Fiona, essentially forgoing personal benefits to ensure funds keep flowing to your research. I did want to ask about having this distinct pool of funding and what it has meant for your research work. You mentioned there that it has helped bridge gaps between large-scale government grants. Is that the main benefit or does having this funding pot allow you to tackle projects that would not usually get support from public grant schemes? I think a bit of both because certainly we have people uh, supporting us in things that we wouldn't, you wouldn't get we wouldn't be competitive uh, and but that are really worthwhile doing you know community education programs and prevention and things like that uh, and uh, and supporting uh, our uh, sort of nursing allied health research or psychology research as well and getting that preliminary data up so that then you become competitive so it's been a huge huge capacity builder for us and it's provided an opportunity to do things like we've done a big body of work with over 30 publications in, public, in population health data linkage uh, and that was uh, partially NHMRC, but the rest of that was funded by Woodside Petroleum. They've been one of our strongest partners around our disaster management strategies and we have uh, we work with Chevron too. So it gave us a, it's a much is a much broader scope. And if you're looking at every little every bit along the whole continuum, the whole journey influencing the outcome, then you can't just put all your eggs in one basket. You need to look across the continuum and within the systems that we work in to make sure that we translate everything. And that's been a goal too, actually, is to make sure we we translate everything as we go forward. So can we talk about two thousand and two? You had already done this commercialization, this spin-out. You were running a burns unit and have this new approach to burns treatment. And then all of a sudden, the Bali bombings happened and there was this dire clinical need from several seriously burned victims that were transferred to your hospital. What was that time like and how much light suddenly got shone on your practice? I think that was that was yeah the window to our world opened absolutely I've said that many times because we were beavering away you know presenting our work and publishing um, uh, bits and pieces but we hadn't really uh, got into our stride but we are uh, the use of cell uh, uh, suspension spray skin cells on would be part of what we'd done from 1995 so for us it wasn't new but it sort of captured the imagination of people around. Uh, and you know that was that's just the way of the world, uh, and in our space we did the best we could at the time with what our standard of care was, and we had uh, very rigorous disaster processes in place. But it was busy; it was overwhelming on one level. But the capacity to be trained to be able to help in those circumstances is an extraordinary privilege. And I mean, it's almost 20 years ago now, but it is I've. I've, I've always felt the privilege for it to have had such an impact on many lives it is, for me, extraordinary. 
So from the tragedy of the Bali bombings came a silver lining that the public were finally aware of the incredible work Professor Wood had been doing to revolutionise burns treatment from her base in Western Australia. Over the following years, that focus translated into accolades, with Fiona being named an Order of Australia in 2003, the West Australian Citizen of the Year in 2004, and finally the Australian of the Year in 2005, arguably the highest individual honour in the country. I asked Fiona what receiving these awards has meant to her, both personally and professionally. I, I find that's a, that's a really interesting question because I'm not exactly sure. It, it has uh, raised awareness into burn injury and the devastation it wreaks. And there's never just one ripple from when you drop the pebble in the sort of pond, as it were. And burn injury does impact on a lot of people, not just the person that it primarily affects. And so to have that raised awareness has been very positive. And for me, I think oh, it's been extraordinary. It's weird. <laughs> to be honest it's not like I wanted to be an actress or whatever you know what I mean like some like some people's career choices are very public my career choice wasn't a public career choice and to be Australian of the year we had one a reunion and there was two groups of us those that are like the elite sportsmen and entertainers and then there's the scientists at the other and we go like oh it's weird that we're all in the same room you know so it says something good about Australia I think that you can recognize people in all sorts of different fields it's still I still feel that it was in a bubble that was quite extraordinary special words it's hard to find the words to describe that year as Australian of the year it's clearly defined who I am now and that's for sure so can we talk about your kind of latest research efforts? You've been working a lot around the nervous system and how the brain interacts with burns and wound healing. What's driving your kind of interest and passions there? Well, we, we've done a lot of work in understanding in the cell-based therapies. We've done lots of work in all different facets. It, you know, it's a very complex jigsaw burn injury. But the skin stories goes forward. We, we're working with people in our local universities and inter, interstate universities and a company called Inventure building a 3D printing solution, so point-of-care 3D printing for skin. We're also working with our teams here understanding the chemistry of injury and healing uh, such that we can develop use the eye knife as uh, real-time rapid evaporative mass spectrometry so that we understand the quality of the tissue we're cutting through what really brings this all together is the fact that uh, we had a, a young boy who survived an 80 percent burn as an eight-year-old only to die of a rare cancer as an 11-year-old and so with the data linkage work I mentioned briefly earlier, we were able to look at the data of 34,000 patients with burn injury in Western Australia and compare them with 120,000 non-burn patient people from the match for age, sex, geospatial and socioeconomic parameters. And we know that uh, even non-major burns, even minor burns, do affect you for life. And so We've started developing a biobank at the children's and the adult hospitals where we're collecting biological specimens and trying to understand these changes. And so I guess in a nutshell, our, so our research going forward, it falls into one of four groups. The chemistry of trauma, wound healing and scarring. The neurological impact of skin trauma and its repair. The systemic impact of burn injury and its treatment, that's understanding how 
that affects the rest of your life and then delivering the burn care in a health system so our research is broad but it's uh, it's all relevant to trying to improve the quality of what we do on a day-to-day basis well fiona we should start to wrap up now it's been truly fascinating to speak with you and i know we need to let you get back to your important work before we say farewell the final question we like to ask all our guests is do you have any book recommendations for the audience what's inspired you well, oh, you should have warned me. Readings, I, I, I read every day. I go, it's dream time. I go to sleep with a book. And, you know, from crime fiction to bio to sci-fi, so biographies and sci-fi and all sorts of different things. I I think it's hard because there's a lot of uh, things out there that can inspire you. In, and what inspires an individual is, is, is unique to the individual. And I always say motivation is... It's so hard to define, but it's contagious. Well, hopefully our audience has been inspired by your story, Fiona. It's certainly been my privilege to interview you. Thank you so much for your time and joining us here on the Lab Notes podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Take care. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guests' biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.